This is a conversation with journalist Taylor Moore on her article for the Chicago Reader detailing scandals of abuse and misconduct in Chicago's slam poetry and creative writing scene. Taylor and I discuss what these allegations of misconduct were, how they've impacted the Chicago youth creative writing scene, as well as the Chicago abolitionist scene, which tried to resolve these allegations of misconduct through restorative justice programs and not the prison industrial complex. It's a conversation that looks at what happens when art is made into a profit-seeking medium, the complexities and failures that still need to be worked out in restorative justice programs, and how positions of race, gender, and class still affect artistic communities that are trying to become spaces of freedom from these intersectional oppressions. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have numerous conversations with abolitionists, artists, and poets about the complexities of making art in such a fucked up world. You can also go to our main website, asiaarttours.com, for similar conversations in print. Here now is Taylor Moore on her article for the Chicago Reader, looking at misconduct in Chicago's slam poetry, community, and creative writing scenes. Thank you for listening. My name is Taylor Moore. Um, I'm a freelance journalist uh, based in Chicago. Um, I've written for The Guardian, The Chicago Reader, the Columbia Journalism Review, and other publications, uh, mostly about arts and culture um, and injustice um, in Chicago and beyond. Um, I've also been a board member of the Asian American Journalists Association, um, and, I, and I work at the International Women's Media Foundation as a program coordinator. So we're talking about your article for The Chicago Reader, A Silence Louder Than Words, How Allegations of Sexual Abuse Exposed Cracks in the Foundation of Young Chicago Authors, Free Write Arts and Literacy, and the City's Spoken Word Community. So I don't think we need to do an introduction to SLAM um, itself. I think people will be familiar at this point. It has enough cultural saturation. Um, I was a SLAM poet for a number of years and sort of fell out of love with the art form in the community, in part because of some of the issues we'll talk about today. But to start our conversation at its peak, what was the scope and power of creative writing and slam poetry in Chicago? And to start on a positive note, what good did it do for Chicago's youth? Yeah, Chicago has always had a thriving art scene um, in slam poetry and beyond. Um, There's so many... um, you know, poetry readings and slam tournaments, um, independent publishers, booksellers, um, a number of artists from all different walks of life um, in Chicago um, that I think um, contribute to um, a really vibrant um, scene that, you know, um, kind of exists outside of the, um, what is it, the MFA versus NYC type um, dichotomy of, of creative writing. Um, I think Chicago, um, is uniquely collaborative and and supportive in a way that, um, I don't think is necessarily exists in other major cities, uh, where that may be more, more cutthroat. Um, I, Chicago, um, from what I can tell of the art scene has always been very, um, like everyone like wants to boost each other up. Um, everyone wants to see each other succeed. Um, and I think that's what makes Chicago special. In terms of scope and sort of funding and how diverse and widespread uh, these foundations were, could you discuss a little bit about just how commonplace things like slam and creative writing were, as well as some of the real money, power, 
that was behind uh, the slam poetry scene and creative writing scene in Chicago? Yeah, um, so slam poetry um, really has its origins in Chicago. Um, I think, I believe one of the first um, slam poetry tournaments, um, or I believe one of the first slam poetry um, events in the nation um, was um, the Uptown Poetry Slam um, at the Green Mill. Um, so Chicago is, has been a nexus of the slam poetry uh, community um, since the 80s and 90s. Um, and it really grew in popularity in the 90s with um, the, its intersections with hip hop. Um, and in the early 2000s, Deaf Poetry Jam um, on HBO, um, which had you know, a, a rotating cast of, of slam poetry performers. Um, from different cities, um, that was huge in in establishing slam poetry as um, this radical, but also um, this 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 radical, but also um, a legitimate form of of poetry that um, you know disrupts a lot of what you would expect out of the the traditional poetry scene. And speaking to um, I guess organizations. Um, Young Chicago Authors um, was really one of the, the first organizations in, in Chicago to um, embrace slam poetry. Um, it's the organization started in the early 90s with uh, Bob Boone, who is an educator from the, um, from the North Shore in the, the suburbs of Chicago. Um, it started out as a creative writing program. Um, the, the main offering was the Saturday, Saturday Writing Program, which was a program for high school students and um, young adults to, to attend weekly writing courses on like, poetry and fiction um, with uh, the promise of a, a college scholarship at the end. Um, so that, that was the origins of the um, Young Chicago Authors and um, into the, the late 90s and the early 2000s, it really um, increased its focus on, on hip hop, on, on slam poetry over uh, more traditional forms of creative writing. Um, so that was one of the, um, it, it really was one of the, Young Chicago's authors was the, um, one of the main engines into, into the growth of slam poetry in Chicago. Now for me uh, personally, how I got involved in slam, and I think this will be true for many of the interview subjects, uh, Nate Marshall comes to mind as well as, uh, who's now a PhD candidate, but was a very respected slam poet before some of the issues we'll touch upon in our conversation uh, he became involved with, or not implicated in, but fell victim to some of the dynamics of power and abuse we'll discuss today, uh, is that they offered alternative models of education and alternative ideas uh, in spaces that can be very rigid. Um, for me, the, that was public schooling, where couldn't sit still for five goddamn minutes, but if you could get me on a stage or in a writing group, I felt a sense of freedom and comfort I would never get from traditional sort of rote uh, educational models. Likewise, for juvenile offenders, slam and creative writing has long been a very transformational art form that allows them freedom that they do not typically find within uh, the prison industrial complex. Uh, and what's amazing about your piece is that you can see uh, just how much SLAM connects to ideas of black empowerment, combating white supremacy, LGBTQI, and the abolitionist communities of Chicago. Uh, to tie that together, here's a quote from your article from famed uh, Chicago writer and organizer Eve Ewing. In the name of youth empowerment, often these creative writing spaces have much blurrier boundaries between adults and young people that you might find in an organization like a school. When adults aren't responsible about establishing clear boundaries, boundaries that are not ageist or disempowering, but that make the space safer, there are people who take advantage to that. So, uh, end quote there, Eve is sort of talking about what we're going to allude to after this question, what we're going to get into of, of this scandal. But to focus on the positive aspects she brings up, um, how was trust built between poets and creative writers in, let's say, a school who might be leery of slam poetry? And how did poetry and creative writing offer creative freedoms to young people who found themselves in places like a school or a jail in Chicago? So I would say a lot of students 
um, because of the influence of young Chicago, Chicago authors and louder than the bomb, um, the, the annual, um, slam poetry tournament. Um, I think a lot of students first exposure to slam poetry was through schools. Um, and I think that, um, I guess to, um, to reference, um, what, yeah, um, I want to, to reference to, um, when English teacher, um, uh, Nora Flanagan, who had told, who had long, uh, facilitated, um, louder than the bomb tournaments. Um, she told me that um, slam poetry really um, captured students' imaginations um, in the sense that um, students felt like um, they saw the, the their experiences and um, issues they face um, reflected um, in that kind of art. They felt it was more um, free-flowing and um, not as uh, dusty as, um, you know, the poetry that um, one would normally um, expect to find um, in an English class. Um, the artists um, looked and sounded like them. Um, and there was a, just a more of a freedom in slam poetry than you would find in a, a sonnet or a limerick, for example. Um, so I think students um, really felt um, seen. Um, they felt safe in the, the structures of their, um, their poetry. Um, club or their Louder Than the Bomb team or in um, Wordplay, which is the, the weekly open mic that Young Chicago Authors hosts. Um, and uh, to, your, to your second question, um, yeah, I think also um, speaking to the, the Juvenile Detention Center, um, one of the other organizations that the story references is Rewrite Arts and Literacy, um, which is a defunct arts organization that serves criminalized and incarcerated youth in Chicago. Um, so that involves like creative writing workshops and um, performance spaces in the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center. And, you know, I think that um, what the free right was, um, who was implicated in this, um, in this scandal was um, doing a lot of um, essential creative work for the past, um, I believe, 20 years um, in, you know, empowering youth who um, may not otherwise be able to, to see themselves in, in art and in hip hop and in poetry and um, providing, you know, essential services in a, within an institution that um, seeks to dehumanize them. Um, so I think that those are um, aspects in, in schools and in, um, in the jails that, that students found empowering. Now, uh, to touch upon this, uh, this scandal, we'll start with a quote and then I'll, I'll loop in the personal here. So the scandal is going to center around primarily two individuals, though others were either complicit or silent or felt sort of bullied into silence. The individuals we'll talk about here are Kevin Koval and Roger Bonera Guard. Um, you have a fascinating quote from uh, Chelsea Ross, who's a former free right contractor. Uh, this story is not special. It fits every archetype of every scenario like it. A powerful man made invincible by a web of powerful people around him. Uh, end quote. So who are the individuals we'll be talking about today, Kevin and Roger, and what are the allegations that are currently that were discussed in your story and are currently still being processed in Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. To um, introduce them, um, Kevin Koval um, was for a long time the um, creative director of the of Young Chicago Authors and um, one of the founders of Louder Than the Bomb, um, which it was the um, the nation's largest poetry slam and. Um, that model has since been replicated in like multiple cities across the country. Um, and he himself is a, a poet, um, has published uh, multiple poetry collections, um, A People's History of Chicago um, being one of the, the biggest, um, is published by, by Haymarket. And he's also, um, you know, like a podcaster, um, a speaker, um, and has um, generally had a lot of clout in the, the Chicago art scene for um, probably 10, 15, 20 years. And um, I guess um, his origin, um, he used to, um, as an artist um, growing up in um, Chicago in the Chicago suburbs, um, was attracted to 
to hip hop, to poetry. Um, he taught um, workshops on those subjects in, at alternative high schools. Um, after, um, after his college years and um, kind of was performing at the, the Guild Complex um, for a long time um, and came to know Anna West who um, was an early um, YCA employee um, and they um, were both worked at Young Chicago Authors for um, a long time and, and founded um, a group that was focused on um, pedagogy um, among English teachers and creative writing instructors. And uh, yeah, and the, to introduce Roger as well, um, Roger Venere Agard um, is also a, a well, uh, a renowned poet. Um, he's from um, Trinidad and Tobago and was also um, had a long career in New York before moving to Chicago in 2009. Um, he's a two-time natural poetry champion, um, performed on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam um, and has had also published uh, poetry collections, um, one of which was shortlisted for a National Book Award. So he was also um, very influential in the scene in the, the 2000s and into the, the 2010s for, um, for his work and his, his mentorship, uh, particularly in the, um, the Juvenile Detention Center when he was working at Freewrite. And yeah, and um, both Kevin and Cobal um, had a, a close relationship as well. Um, Kevin, um, I believe, had been the person to recruit Roger into uh, moving to Chicago and, and working at Young Chicago Authors in um, a position he created himself, um, poet in residence. So they both had a, um, an, a big a creative partnership that lasted even, you know, into, um, the um, allegations that, which I'll get into now. Um, so the this, this story um, kind of starts with the, the allegations against um, Roger Bernier Agard um, regarding sexual assault and rape um, stemming um, from 2013 when he was accused of rape by a former YCA colleague um, who in this, who in this past year in 2021 um, came forward about how she was raped by him, how the greater poetry community and young Chicago authors responded to these allegations, which um, were not received well. She, there were a number of people who were, and organizations who were willing to uh, protect Roger's reputation, um, protect his place in the community, um, and he continued, he, and although he was um, fired from YCA at the time in 2013, he continued to, to work at Freewrite Arts and Literacy and was even promoted um, during that time um, up until his um, dismissal in late 2020. And there were also a number of other allegations against um, Roger Bernier Agard. Um, other um, two other allegations, um, in relation to, that were reported to um, YCA at the time, um, one being um, sexual assault um, um, that is um, described in uh, my story by a, a survivor who um, was a former student of his, who um, you know, whose whose sexual boundaries were transgressed by him, and who later came forward. Um, and there's also another case of, of sexual harassment that was reported at the time at YCA in 2013. Um, and there were also um, a number of allegations against him um, stemming from his time in New York um, when he was um, at the, the nonprofit he founded, uh, Bladder Arts, um, which ended up dissolving in, in 2013 as a result of the, the allegations of, of sexual assault. Um, and with Kevin, um, a lot of the, the criticism and um, scrutiny in the article surfaces around his protection of Roger Bonaire Agard, of how um, he continued to give Roger opportunities, um, even past um, the known allegations about, about Roger, um, like publishing Roger in the, his 2015 book, um, The Breakbeat Poets, which, is a, which was a really um, influential poetry or anthology at the time, at, published by Haymarket. And yeah, also just continuing to be publicly 
friends and, and collaborators and was also known for um, lots of bullying behavior um, within his own organization at, at YCA of you know stonewalling and retaliating against um, employees, colleagues, collaborators um, who disagreed with him or um, somehow wronged him in, in, in certain ways. Um, he, Kevin Koval, um, from what I can tell from um, the, the months of reporting I did and the, the many conversations I had was really um, this a towering figure in, in the Chicago art scene. Um, one of the, I'd say major gatekeepers um, and I'd say even um, considered himself a kingmaker. He, um, one of the reasons why I believe he had such a um, such a reputation and such such cloud was his, his also his associations with with other um, artists who were um, possibly more famous or um, artists he'd mentored himself, like Chance the Rapper, uh, for example, in the the foreword of of Kevin's book, um, A People's History of Chicago, Chance calls him, um, calls Kevin his artistic father um, and was one of the, um, credited as one of his main mentors um, growing up. Um, so, and like Kevin hasn't, so as a result like Kevin has a number of um, associations that um, granted him legitimacy and credibility in the organization, um, in, in the organization and in the wider community, um, even as um, there was, um, I guess doubts and some, I guess, um, eyebrow raising at the um, idea that an affluent white man was the one of the cultural, the main like cultural figures in the slam poetry community. So within uh, this question, uh, it touches upon, I'm sure, many other slam poetry communities. Within the small slam poetry community of Ann Arbor, um, there were two uh, prominent poets who were accused of sexual assault. From my understanding of this uh, scandal, uh, basically slam poetry went from this space of trust uh, and more abolitionist or restorative justice principles to ones where many institutions, many funders, at least for a period of time uh, in the aftermath of allegations against Roger and, and Kevin, uh, would not fund slam poetry, would stay away from slam poetry. And it's something where this is a space that had the potential to really be transformative for many young people, in particular youth of color and LGBTQI youth. For these two men and your reporting, did you come to see them as in some ways corrupted by these institutions? Is this a case of a bad apple or is this a case of um, these structures maybe exacerbating as they got more famous, as they got more powerful, exacerbating what might be minor flaws? And to touch upon this other notion, we're now in, you know, in Arbor because of, uh, in part Chicago, but also because of allegations against two prominent members for sexual assault. Slam poetry is pretty non-existent now where it once was incredibly vibrant and diverse uh, space for young people. Could you talk a bit about how you came to see Roger and Kevin in terms of how these institutions, if at all, enabled them? And for institutions that tried to help them, that tried to give them the benefit of the doubt through restorative justice or abolitionist principles, what harm beyond the slam poetry community have their actions done to spaces of freedom and uh, self-empowerment for young people. So I don't know them intimately as people, so I don't think I can speak to their um, individual motivations or development as people, but I can say that um, these are, you know, two, um, particularly, this is, I guess Chicago is a particularly egregious case of, um, of, of sexual abuse that was allowed to occur and uh, proliferate and um, for a long time, but at the same time, I after the the publication of my story, um, I heard from multiple people who were telling me about how these same issues of um, sexual abuse, um, of celebrity culture and misogyny, 
um, have occurred in their own cities as well. And, um, and, and some people even told me that this happens in literally every city. Um, so I think that um, um, rather than focus, um, even though my story focuses on these um, two particular people, this is a, um, a wider issue in the arts community and also in just um, our world in general, like living in a uh, racist patriarchal um, society where um, people who are uh, non-white, people who are um, women, people who are um, marginalized are, are silenced and are, you know, like are, are blamed for, um, the, for the abuse they face um, and, you know, are not believed um, and are told to essentially like shut up and, and deal with it on their own um, and are asked to, um, asked to set aside their own feelings and their own harm um, because the men who are, have been implicated are, are talented, are charismatic, are, you know, are good with youth, like are, there, are good at their jobs. You know, there's a lot that um, marginalized people are asked to set aside um, for the, the sake of, of men's careers. So I think that's um, an important aspect that, um, you know, is exists in our society and is also replicated in even um, ostensibly progressive and, and radical organizations. This is, these were two individuals who were given multiple chances at restorative justice uh, based, in, from my understanding, largely an abolitionist principle. So trying to rehabilitate and address these allegations uh, outside of incarceration and policing. So this is from uh, Eve Ewing uh, again. Many people in the poetry community, myself included, don't believe in police as a way to address harm. But we also need to spend time learning about and building other forms of healing and accountability. Because if we do nothing at all, it leaves spaces it leaves space for people to take advantage of that and be hurtful again and again. So I wanted to ask, what is the larger fallout in terms of these organizations were all integrated, if not in terms of their funding, I think in terms of how they saw themselves as building a different vision outside of capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy in Chicago. How were uh, Mr. Benaragard and Mr. Koval's actions um, harmful to these other institutions? And what reflection have Chicago's restorative justice communities had about where this process failed? Um, why these non-carceral solutions allowed, in particular, Mr. Bonaregard to continue preying on victims? Yeah, um, I think there was a lot of um, harm um, that occurred with um, the survivors of um, sexual abuse, um, with survivors of um, like workplace harassment and bullying, um, people who had uh, experienced really toxic um, cultures um, related to the workplace and, and their art. Um, I think those are um, aspects that um, can't be downplayed. Um, a lot of times, um, and in, in, in many cases, uh, people have had to spend years trying to unlearn um, toxic behaviors and um, values that they'd um, come to, um, they'd ingested while at Young Chicago Authors or, or at Freewrite, um, having to reckon with the, their role in it, in it, even if it was um, having to reckon with their role and having to um, like many people, also like the, this behavior has um, driven many artists out of Chicago. Like many the the people I spoke to um, have left the the art scene or have left poetry or have left like youth slam poetry um, as a result of um, their experiences with these organizations. Um, some people have even left the city um, or have had had to um, pivot careers um, as a result and. Um, yeah, that that you know affects the um, the the fabric of the community as well. Um, when people are seeing um, their friends um, driven out of these spaces, out of these ostensibly progressive spaces, and and I think it will take 
um, a long time for um, these, well, I, I guess it was specifically Young Chicago authors since, uh, since Free Write um, dissolved as an organization. Um, I think it, um, there's a, a lot of trust to, to be rebuilt um, with Young Chicago authors. I think they, um, with the, um, the new leadership and um, the staff, I, I believe that they actually have um, done a lot over the past year to um, try to address um, community concerns and um, to build better workplace policies because a lot of the people who are driving these policies now have been the people who've been talking about the need for it for, for several years. Um, so I think do think the, um, the policies and the actions that YCA is taking now um, is, a, is a step in the, the right direction. Um, but yeah, I think um, speaking specifically to um, Roger Benair Agard and um, how he was able to um, continue working in the um, Chicago community, I think he had you know, a lot of um, clout as a talented, charismatic artist, as a mentor, um, as a leader. And I think he also had a lot of friends in, in high places who, um, you know, were willing to protect him because because he said that, for example, he undergone um, an accountability process with um, one of the survivors um, because he was, um, and also because a lot of times he was allowed to, um, allowed to advance the narrative of what had happened um, versus, um, you know, people hearing directly what survivors had undergone and what they would feel, what survivors would feel is, is, is necessary compensation, necessary action to take. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I, I think these flaws are inherent in um, Chicago's abolitionist or restorative justice spaces. I think um, people are reckoning with, with these questions everywhere. Um, like how do we, again, for accountability over punishment, how do we protect people while not involving the police or carceral systems? Um, how do we not replicate the um, harmful racism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, misogyny in our own spaces? Um, and I think it's really, um, I think it's really difficult and messy work, but it's also necessary. And there's not really a, a roadmap for it. Um, and yeah, and I think these processes can be exploited because the people in power want to stay in power, and there are always people willing to to overlook these transgressions to maintain the status quo and also their own power. Um, and the, just to, to be specific about um, how this how this played out um, in real life, um, so in in 2013 when the allegations. Of, of rape surfaced um, against Roger Bonner Agard. Um, there were a group of poets that were organizing to ban Roger from performance venues across the city um, who were, um, you know, who were aiming not to like quote unquote punish him, but to, but to ensure that the, the spaces that um, the artistic spaces that exist in, in the city are, are safe and that the uh, people are taking these allegations seriously and not brushing them under, under the rug. And I spoke to um, organizers that were involved in that push and the, um, the, the responses um, from venues really ran the gamut. There are some that banned him immediately and put out a statement. There are others that um, kind of, you know, like hemmed and hawed and were like, maybe like do you have more evidence or um i think that we need to not name him or i need to take this to like this other group so we can figure out what to do um and there are others who outright um said that that the act of banning roger from performance spaces because of sexual assault allegations um or because of rape allegations were um themselves doing a lot of harm to um, other people by banning him. Um, uh, people who said that, you know, the act of banning was equivalent to um, sexual assault itself. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I, from what I can tell from the people who are organizing in that, um, there was a lot of, um, there were enablers and, and friends of his who 
kind of used this um, social justice language to um, to keep Roger in the scene. It reminds me quite a bit of how Black feminists came to look back at some of the flaws of revolutionary movements that were led by Black men, where one of the implicit things I took away from your article, you do not say this, this is just from uh, my own reading of the article, is that many people did not, as a Black man, many people did not want another Black man in prison, another Black man in uh, the prison industrial complex, another Black man having to face incarceration. And so restorative justice was used, and in this case, um, a bad actor took advantage. Uh, if it, Unfortunately, that's the cut and dry of it, as far as I'm considered. Could you talk a little bit about those nuances of social justice and how, in particular, many of the Black female leaders of Chicago, Miriam Kaba makes an appearance in your story, Eve Ewing, how did they sort of articulate that this is not something new, but this is something part of a larger historical trend that abolitionists, in particular female abolitionists of color, have been trying to unravel and deal with for many, many, many generations? Yeah, um, I that that was something that was echoed to me as well um, from um, some people I spoke with um, for the story that the idea that... Um, they didn't want to put um, another black man in prison um, that they wanted to, uh, they preferred to go through um, community accountability processes that um, they believed would be more transformative for themselves and also for um, their abuser um, in trying to, you know, like in trying to um, forge a better future and forge a um, better future for themselves and for um, the organizations and their own he healing. Um, that said, um, yeah, I think that those are um, questions that a lot of um, abolitionists, uh, particularly female abolitionists of color, have been been reckoning with, um, and how and how to um, deal with cases of um, rape and sexual assault and um, and and violence without. Um, throwing someone into, into prison. And yeah, um, I did speak to um, Eve Ewing for the story um, who um, provided some, some thoughts on the overall, um, I guess that the, the temperature of the, of the scene, uh, of the poetry scene. And um, she spoke to me about the, you know, the need to um, not involve the, the criminal justice system and um, while also creating policies and, and boundaries for um, within their own community so that um, so that there can be healthy boundaries um, between um, between students and between adults because um, yeah th with these um, systems of harm if there if nothing happens they um, those systems of harm will, will replicate. Um, and I'm thinking of um, specific examples um, in my story where, um, you know, in, in 2013 wasn't the first time that the or, Young Chicago Authors has, has reckoned with um, how to deal with um, cases of, of sexual assault, of harassment, of, of rape. Um, Cause these were um, things that, um, Young, that um, staff at, at YCA were um, dealing with in the early 2000s, particularly um, with Black women staff members of trying to um, deal with um, deal with men in their organization who who take advantage of young people, of, of trying to um, create policies that um, they create a safe space, um, and that define the the relationships that students and, and adults should be having and should not be having. Um, and they, and it, from what I can tell, there were um, some like pushback from, from leadership and how to, to implement that. And I think there's, um, with the actions that Young Chicago Authors is taking now um, in 2021 around things like, um, trainings on consent and safe spaces and, and rape culture. Um, 
audits of the organization, um, hiring an in-house therapist. A lot of those, those policies that are being implemented now um, are things that staff and community members have been asking for the organization uh, for eight years. Um, because when this came up in, in 2013 and in 2014, um, the survivors and um, staff members did want um, there to be an accountability process and um, policies for what happens when this happens next time. Um, and the leadership largely um, ignored um, the, the demands that organizers had around this. Um, I think there was um, concern from management about the legal implications of, for example, um, naming, naming Roger Bonner Agard in communications as um, a rapist or um, for like legal reasons. And there was, um, yeah, I think they were looking at things from like a, a legal perspective rather than considering the, the community needs and, and how we should, um, and how they should address uh, what had happened. Turning to, I think, another important question as we near the end of our interview is Mr. Koval, who you've talked about as a gatekeeper, someone who I think put celebrity, fame, and profit above doing the right thing. Um, this is a man who uh, profited enormously from his associations with youth, and in particular, black youth, their creative talents, consulting for companies like Apple, the Chicago Cubs, and making anywhere from two to five thousand uh, dollars at uh, dozens of yearly speaking events. Uh, to interrogate white privilege, you discuss with Kevin's former creative partner Anna West, who uh, provides this quote. I think Kevin is capable of code switching, and that is something that could be read as appropriative. I don't think Kevin has thought critically about how he has centered himself and what his whiteness has meant for how people gravitate towards him as a person who creates access to white liberals who are all too eager to hear the stories of black and brown youth. Um, it is a conundrum for Chicago, which has uh, given birth to some of the most revolutionary uh, thinkers of combating white supremacy, of empowering uh, black youth. Why was so much power given to this straight white man who profited enormously off the, the talents of, of young black people? And what larger questions, if, if there are any to be raised, when we see something like Apple, you know, come up in a story about what's supposed to be empowering black and brown youth, what questions, if any, and they can be loose ends that couldn't fit into the very cogent narrative you've created for this very complex story um, of capitalism and how it profits off the voices of marginalized people. So why was Kevin put in charge in terms of any answers that you received? And then what larger questions does it say about Apple was really interested as soon as he could get black and brown kids on stage? You know, I've said this um, multiple times, but I think even in the most progressive communities and organizations, racism and misogyny exists and even and even thrives. Um, since we live in you know, a racist and patriarchal society, that doesn't get checked out the door if you enter a space where they say it isn't tolerated. Um, many of the Chicago civic and arts organizations are run by affluent white people, staffed by affluent white people. Their boards are affluent white people. Um, so I think that um, there is a, um, a level of, um, I think there are a lot of people who, um, I think um, Tara Betts tells me this in um, her story, in, in her um, in her quote um, for the story was that there is like a desire for that type of, of white savior um, complex, um, that narrative that um, this um, white man um, is saving um, underprivileged black and brown youth through through hip hop and, and through slam poetry, um, and I think that um, that played out in the in the way that Kevin um, kind of became um, over the years. Um, you know, the Louder Than the Bomb was founded as a um, a group decision and um, a group collaborative effort, but um, over the years it became this narrative that Kevin Koval had single handedly founded Louder Than the Bomb, 
and that um, he was the person being asked to speak to in interviews. He was the um, he was really the face of Louder Than a Bomb and and NYCA for a long time. And um, yeah, I think that does speak to this desire to um, to simplify um, how these um, types of things occurs. You know, it's the it's a it's a tidy. Um, like founder myth, it's a tidy origin story, you know, that um, one person saw, you know, the, I think the, the origin story of, of Larry Than the Bomb was that um, in 2001 with the, um, you know, with the tough on crime fervor um, fueling um, anti-gang loitering laws and, uh, and like the, um, the like panic around like 9-11, there was a, um, a desire to create a space for black and brown youth to um, to practice their craft and to um, to advance their art in um, a space that understood um, that those types of, of policies um, were um, existed and were against them. Um, so I think that the um, these organizations and um, were founded on the, the the best of intentions, but I think at, at the same time, um, there's a lot of um, there's something really like prog- problematic when um, when people like particularly um, men and, and white men are um, are allowed to, to become the 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 face of an organization, the decision maker, um, the person who um, who's influences uh, goes unchallenged. And I, I'm not saying that um, there weren't there weren't many people who were um, quietly and unquietly like challenging um, the power that he had, um, the stranglehold maybe maybe that he had in um, the Chicago art scene. But I think that um, there was also a lot of fear of what he could do to their careers and what he could do to um, so being, you know, being so connected to um, Chicago's music, arts, and like activist scenes, what he could do to um, the, the chapbook that's being um, published and that you're, that you're publishing or what he could do to the, the reading series that you're organizing or um, like what like shit he could talk to to other people like that. Um, it's, a, um, it's like, it's kind of a small scene. Um, it's like big, it's big, you know, it's big and small. And yes. in, in some ways, and <laughs> yes. um, everyone, yeah, and everyone knows each other, and um, yeah, there was a lot of fear of um, how he could ruin people's careers for um, for speaking out, and like there are people who I spoke to who were um, whose careers were ruined from speaking out Dr. about. Marshall. Um, yeah, um, Nate Marshall, um, a, a poet and um, artist in formerly in Chicago, but now um, in Colorado, um, he did speak to me about um, challenges he faced while while working with Kevin Cobal. You know, um, Nate was um, probably one of um, Kevin's most prominent uh, mentees, like probably one of the, the, the best known um, modern poets in, in Chicago. And, um, you know, he was he was featured in the, the Louder Than a Bomb documentary that was made and that was released in, in 2011. Um, so he ha- has, you know, had like a long, like close relationship with, with Kevin. Um, and even he um, experienced challenges in the, the workplace with getting Kevin to, um, to listen to what he had to say, to, um, to respectfully address like just the creative and uh, workplace disagreements. Um, and, and there's a specific instance where um, recounted to me where um, there was a, um, a story being written about in, in Chicago Magazine. Um, that was a profile of Kevin Cobal um, around the time that A People's History of Chicago was being published um, in 2017, where um, the, the writer was asking um, Nate and other people, you know, about Kevin's status as a white man in the um, primarily black and brown like creative scene here. And, um, and then, you know, like later, um, Kevin kind of, is, is very offended by how how the, those questions were being asked of, of Nate, even though that it wasn't something that, you know, he necessarily even like agreed with. Um, so I think there was like a, um, 
like a freezing of that relationship. And I think that's uh, not even just Nate Marshall, but repeated across. Um, that was something that multiple people told me about of how um, how Kevin Koval, um, you know, like had the tendency to, to freeze out people who disagreed with him um, in this really retaliatory manner. When I was starting Slam, it was when uh, Taylor Molly almost got a deal with uh, CBS for a sitcom and uh, Saul Williams was doing these mixed uh, hip hop albums with people like Most Def uh, or uh, when, you know, like someone like Kevin would get documentaries made about him. And growing up as a young person, gradually what I had fallen in love with for Slam, you know, space of artistic freedom, this space of collaboration, um, this space where you weren't under surveillance uh, like, a, like a school and could say whatever was on your mind. That was gradually corrupted into ones where your goal was to get all tens. Your goal was to get on HBO, on uh, the Deaf Poetry Jam. Your goal was to get famous. And uh, I know it doesn't encompass all the oppressions and prejudices and violences we've talked about today, but this seeking of fame and the seeking of profit over seeking truth and beauty in the art form, for me, is one of the fundamental corrupting agents that flows throughout your piece. Um, selfishness rather than selflessness, uh, to paint with a broad brush. And on that note, I'd like to end what's been a very powerful, fascinating conversation with a very dynamic uh, reporter. You've done an incredible job putting this story together and uh, discussing it with us today. So this is a small change you reported on uh, within your story uh, in Chicago's poetry scene. One of the most visible changes was the christening of Louder Than a Bomb, which was canceled this past spring, as the Rooted in Radical Youth Poetry Festival. The first festival was held virtually last month. According to the announcement, this newly imagined festival rethinks scoring and judging to empower participants to get back to the heart of creating a community for young people, to share their stories in a non-competitive environment. End quote. This change gets at the heart of a concern that many coaches had that we, quoting Nora Flanagan, we might be commodifying students' pain, said Nora Flanagan, who coached LTAB teams. We are asking students to share sometimes the hardest thing they've ever lived through in front of an audience and then giving them a score. That felt terrible. So to end on a note of reflection, since your piece has been published, what changes have you seen about putting poetry back in the community rather than the troubling dynamics that emerge when individual superstars or gatekeepers are given uh, concentrated power? How has the art form of poetry returned front and center as the motivating factor for many young people who get involved with this art? Um, and do you think that something moving forward will be sustainable uh, since this scandal is is hopefully in the past. Yeah, I think the the move to um, a non-committive format um, is definitely a good thing for young Chicago, Chicago authors and the um, the youth creative scene in, in the city. Um, so I have heard from poets, um, particularly those who competed while in school, that um, the competition element meant there there was this unspoken incentive to write about your traumas. Um, you know, and, and many teens involved in YCA um, live in disinvested neighborhoods in Chicago. They experience poverty, they experience gun violence. Um, many teens may be, you know, ex experiencing uh, familial abuse or sexual assault or eating disorders and like a number of things that um, plague, um, plague youth. And I think that um, there is this, um, you know, desire, um, unspoken in, in these groups that um, these are things I need to, to talk about um, because um, this is what will make for, for good art and or for art. Get me that, high scores. Yeah, that could get you a 10 out of 10 um, in the in LTAB. And I think that, um, you know, does a disservice to the, um, the development of, of youth when um, you feel um, this pull to um, start talking and like even like performing about um, your traumas without having um, fully processed it without having a support system around you to when um, it because you know the act of, um, of performing um, 
this this poetry um, about some of the, the hardest things you faced um, for many is um, reliving those traumas. And, and I think it's important that um, these young people have, um, you know, someone they can they can talk to, I guess, in like a, in a community setting, but also like professionally who could um, speak to them about um, all these like experiences that they're they're processing like on the page, perhaps for the first time. Um, and I, I do think that is a, uh, a needed change. Well, Taylor, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, obviously, um, Chicago will recover. And I think as painful as this has been, grow and learn from this scandal um, in ways where I hope uh, it will never happen again. For you going forward, um, are, are there, are, is this a story that you're going to continue reporting on? And um, what are some of the other stories that we can look forward to from you as a journalist? Yeah, I think this is um, something I'll continue to follow um, as a journalist. Um, in, in what form that will take, um, I'm not sure, but I think that um, it's important that um, someone be, um, you know, like looking at what um, arts and, and cultural institutions in, in Chicago are, are doing. I think there's a lot um, untapped there about um, in, in many um, these institutions, whether it be um, arts organizations or, or museums or um, that it's untapped that, you know, like, like labor disputes or um, exploitation of black and brown people. I think those are um, important um, topics that um, don't get enough coverage in Chicago. So those are all um, things that I'm, I'm constantly looking at and um, am eager to get tips on. If, if anyone has any um, anything they want to share with me through through email, I'm happy to to listen and try to, um, you know, try to cover the um, issues that um, the Chicago cultural scene faces and and what people are trying to do to make it better. Yeah, um, I can be found on Twitter at Taylor Moore says, um, and I can uh, my website is um, taylorgmore.co, not dot com dot co. Um, that's you. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter to to see um, what comes up.